Amen. I pray that that is your prayer this morning. He is the only one who can steal your soul. And I, I say steal. Steal your soul, sorry. He's the only one who can steal your soul. Thank you for those songs. That song was one that a couple of ladies from the Bethel congregation blessed us with on our final Sunday there. And what a beautiful send-off it was. So many questions. So many unknowns. Except for the one assurance, the one known, the one definite that God was in control. We praise Him for that. We praise Him for this opportunity again. Thank you, Misty. Thank you for the praise team for learning that on such short notice. Thank you for that blessing. I greet you this morning in the precious, holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to reaffirm something that Josh said this morning concerning VBS. What a beautiful opportunity that is to minister to our children. Jesus spoke in His own words in Scripture about how important it is to cherish, to teach, to guide the young children that He has entrusted to us. I have memories of a child of being at this very church for Bible school. Seems like when I was a child, we used to make our rounds. We'd go to Bethel's Bible School, we'd go to Bria's Bible School, we'd come to Providence's Bible School. It was a fun summer. And it was a blessing. It really was. And I pray that you children see VBS, you anticipate it, you see it as a blessing. And look forward to being a part of that this summer. As I looked at the message for this morning, my mind was drawn to the world today that we have and how we're motivated by advertisements, how people are enticed into buying things, anywhere from food to cars to vacation condominiums or timeshares or whatever it may be, whatever you may be enticed into. We have infomercials that tell us whatever they're selling is the next greatest thing. And how quickly we can be disappointed with that next greatest thing. But how convincing their advertisements, how, how those billions of dollars that they're spending, how they can sway us in our humanity to think that that is the next best thing. Maybe as a child you watched commercials on TV of the next greatest snack food and you ran to your mom's town list and you wrote it on there. That's what I want. I know that's what I want. I know that'll make me happy. And that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to entice us into and to think that what they have is better than what we have. We need to try what they have. As we look at our text this morning, we're going to see where this happened in the most basic, but the, bo- the most important truth that we know as Christians. We'll see, we'll look at how Paul brought the gospel the truth of the gospel to the Galatian people. And we're going to talk about what they did with that truth. If you would turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 6. Whenever you're ready, Daryl. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we praise you for your spirit here this morning. The gift of your spirit that you gave us after your son ascended to be with you, Father. God, we pray that through your spirit that these scriptures would be opened up to us this morning, Lord. That we could apply your truth to our heart and we can see the truth that Paul had shared with the Galatian people, the truth that they had so quickly turned away from, Lord, that we could understand, that we could see what they did, and that we could learn through that, Father. We thank you for the gift of your scriptures to teach us, to guide us, to help us, Father. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. When Paul's other letters, two weeks ago when we opened this letter, we, we looked at Paul's greeting. Typically, in his other letters, after his greetings, he would give thanksgiving to God for his readers. When his letter to the Galatians, he didn't do that. He headed straight into the problem. There was a sense of urgency in his writing, a sense of urgency in his message. Well, the problem, what was the problem? What was the urgency over? Well, looking at that first verse, verse 6, again, in another translation, I sometimes like to look at the message translation just to get a different perspective. And some of the words in the message translation kind of intrigued me. The writer says, I can't believe your fickleness. How easily you have turned traitor to him who called you by the grace of Christ. By embracing a variant message. The words that the writer, the, the translator of the message uses, I can't believe. In the ESV it says, astonished. Paul was astonished by how quickly they turned from this gospel that he and Barnabas had, had brought to them. And then the message uses the word fickle. What does the word fickle mean in English? It says mindful to sudden and unpredictable change. Do you know anyone in your life who is fickle? Husbands, be careful. But do you know anyone in your life who is fickle? It seems like they may follow the crowd. It seems like whatever may come, whatever that next greatest advertisement is on TV, they think that's going to be the greatest thing. That's going to help them. That's going to solve all their problems. And they float around aimlessly sometimes. Is that what Paul was seeing in the church at Galatia? It says, Him who called you. Who's Paul talking about? There's a lot of questions of that in the commentators. It could have been Paul. He could have been referring to himself or the message that he had brought. He could have been referring to Christ. He could have been referring to God. All would have been true. So as we look at that verse, we just have to remember that 
the emphasis isn't really on him who called them. It's on the message that they brought. And remember, we already mentioned that Paul and Barnabas had brought the gospel message to the Galatian church. And the Galatian church heard that message. They heard the pure, the true gospel message. But what did they do? Did they live by that message? Did they apply it completely to their hearts? No, he says they quickly turned from it. They quickly turned away from that message, that truth. And what did they turn away to? They turned away to, in Paul's words, a different gospel. Now, he wants to be careful and be sure to say that there's, he says, not that there is a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel. But it's a gospel that is presented as a gospel that is other than the gospel that he had presented, the true gospel. Paul wanted to make that point to them. Now, what was this gospel that Paul and Barnabas brought to them? What did they accept? What did Paul see them accept? Well, as I look at it, at this gospel, I see it in two parts, and we discussed it somewhat in the introduction to the letter. The first part of that gospel was saving grace. We are saved for eternity because of the grace of Jesus Christ. That is the foundational element of the gospel. But there's a part of the gospel that is for us today as we live in these bodies, as we live in these tents of flesh. And it can be called transforming grace. Christ's grace is there to change us, to teach us, to mold us into the image of Christ. And as we said in the introduction, that's what this letter to the Galatians is about. To teach them how to walk in that grace. How to allow that grace to transform them, to change them. Paul explains this gospel in a little more detail in another one of his letters. And then in, in Titus uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There's the saving grace, there's that element of salvation. He continues, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He wrote this 2,000 years ago, but it applies to our present age right now. He goes on to say, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, for each of us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Another one of Paul's letters in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, through our faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by his grace. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The gift of grace to save us, to change us. You see, it's not about us. That's what Paul's telling us. It's all about God. It's all about His saving and changing grace. Well, you've probably heard the comment, well, it's, it's dangerous to take away responsibility. We have to do. We have to do something. If we don't take responsibility, then we'll just drift away. 
No, our responsibility is faith in Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. You see, it's impossible to keep ourselves. It's impossible to live by the law. That was the purpose of the law, was to prove that we couldn't do it. The purpose of the law was to expose sin and to show us what sin was and to show us that we couldn't do it under our own strength. That's what grace was for. At the end of the scripture in Titus, Paul says, who are zealous for good works. Oh, right there. Good works. We need good works. In James, he tells us that faith without works, in the ESV it says without deeds. Faith without deeds is dead. Yes, it is. Just like an apple tree that doesn't produce fruit over time, it's dead. That's why it's not producing fruit. But the apples on that tree do not give that tree life. The tree produces the fruit. Micah chapter 6. Starting in verse 6. A beautiful Old Testament scripture that brings this point to us. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told me, old man. What is good? And what does the Lord require of me? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What does it mean to walk humbly with your God? What is the essence of humility? It begins with confessing what we are. Now, some would say that you need to make a public confession. That's not where I'm going with this. Confessing what you are is first admitting to yourself what you are, that you are a wretched sinner. And then in obedience, taking that to God in love and saying, God, I am wretched. I am horrible. And it's only by your grace that I can be saved, not by anything that I can do. It's only by your grace that I can overcome the temptations of what this world has to offer. Not by my own strength, not my, by my own ability. You see, this other gospel would teach that coming to church, if you're at church every time the doors are open, it would teach you need to be in prayer, you need to be on your knees an hour a day. Mark it off your list. Be on your knees an hour a day. You have to do that. And that will save you. Reading. Read a book of the Bible a day. I'm exaggerating a bit there, maybe. But you need to read consistently every day. If you miss a day of reading your Bible, it will not go well with you. Now, I'm not saying this morning that these things are unimportant. These things are very important. But they too are a fruit of what's within you. My question to you is, why aren't you doing those things? Where's your focus? Let's look at it in the physical Sometimes the spiritual can be hard to wrap our minds around. 
But I like to compare it to the physical life. We're, we're familiar with the physical, how our bodies react, how the world reacts, how things tangibly react to us. I don't know if Myrtle's here this morning, but I would be curious to know how many times that he has told a patient they come in with a description of their symptoms, what they're struggling with. How many times would a doctor tell a patient, well, you need to change your diet and you need to exercise? How many times have we as patients heard that? That's what these coming to church and prayer and reading are. Those are diets for our spiritual bodies. Those are exercises for our spiritual hearts and minds. And they are very important to a healthy Christian life. But we can't depend solely on those. My wife and I watched a documentary a while back called Supersize Me. Many, many of you, some of you may have seen it. A gentleman decided, and he was in very good health. He was about 6'2", 180 pounds, very, very good shape. But he decided for a month of his life that he would eat nothing unless it was on McDonald's menu. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that's all he ate. His personal trainers, his doctors who were watching throughout the month, they encouraged him to at least take a multivitamin. He said, McDonald's doesn't sell those. He took it very literally. And he had to eat at least one time everything on the menu that month. He was miserable. Now, I like a good Big, Big Mac every once in a while. I like some fries. And I need to stay away from their sweet tea. I know it's pure syrup, but I enjoy it sometimes. <laughs> but uh, it's okay in moderation. Those things in themselves are not sinful, but this gentleman was feeding himself physically with food that was not nourishing his body. His liver got fatty. He gained, I think it was close to 30 pounds in that month. His cholesterol skyrocketed. I, I can't even begin to tell you all the details of the things that it did to his body. It took him months to recover, to get everything back to normal. You see, when we don't, fill our body with the spiritual disciplines, that's what we do to our spirit. Now, as in any analogy, analogies come short. And there's one way that this physical analogy comes short that I want to share this morning because it's a blessing. You see, our physical body, we can eat perfectly. We can exercise and keep ourselves in perfect health. But we're still going to die. But in our spiritual lives, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we allow His grace to change us, and because of our love for Him, we participate in the spiritual disciplines. Our spiritual life is healthy and strong. And guess what? When these physical bodies die, our spiritual does not. We go into eternity. We have eternal life. So praise God for the analogy dropping short there. And praise God for that gift of eternal life. And just as a reminder of how important these spiritual disciplines are in bringing us health and in a means for God to bring us peace. You notice in your bulletin, Joshua's Covenant. We're going to be starting a new book this Saturday morning, and I encourage everyone to come. Josh and I are going to be helping. WP's helping. So we have the whole age range. It's open to everyone. So I encourage you to pick up one of those books. 
It's called spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. We're going to be walking through some of these disciplines. I just want to emphasize to you this morning that I'm not dismissing those disciplines. But I'm saying those disciplines in themselves will not save you. They will not transform you. If you don't believe in what you're studying, if you don't put your faith in those words that God has given us before you, they will not change you. But when you put your faith in the truth of the gospel, God's grace will change you and carry you and help you. If you come to me, as I said, I'll ask you the question, are you reading? Are you praying? Are you, are you studying? Are you participating in the spiritual disciplines? Not to guilt you. I see the lack of doing these things as a symptom of a heart issue. Where is your focus? Where is your heart? And guess what? Even someone who is totally in tune with Christ, there's going to be things come up. You may go a day, you may go several days without reading your Bible. That's not to condemn you. That's life. Because life happens. New babies. New gotcha babies. Things happen. God knows that. But he longs to change you and guide you. But he's also very forgiving. You see, the people who were distracting the people of Galatia, they get this backwards. And Jesus gives us a parable in Luke chapter 18. It starts out with, he also told this parable, speaking of Jesus, speaking a parable to his people. He says, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you. I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But Jesus says the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man the tax collector, went down to his house justified, unlike the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How many times have you quoted that last verse? You know that Pharisee was so diligent in listing these wretched sins of these other people, he didn't say anything about pride, did he? He had plenty of it. A lot of self-assurance. And didn't you see that? I didn't see any humility there. And that's what Jesus was pointing out. You see, humility is the root of the gospel. And when we take upon ourselves this other gospel that the people of Galatia were being taught that they were 
taken away from the true gospel that Paul had given them. It's about themselves, about what they can do, and pride will quickly come in. Pride will quickly overtake. But when you accept the true gospel, you know it's not about you. You know how wretched you are, and you know that it's only God that does it. And Paul was teaching them that true gospel. And what are the essence, again, of that true gospel? The first part is to confess your sins. That's humility. That is laying yourself open. That is being honest to yourself, being honest to God, and possibly honest to others as God prompts you to be obedient in that. A second portion, one we haven't really touched on very much yet, and I want to touch on briefly. We have so much to cover in this. But another key connector in the gospel, I say a connector, but it is a key element of the gospel, is to affirm the forgiveness that is available to us through Jesus Christ. If forgiveness wasn't there, confessing those sins would just be condemnation. But because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, we know that there's hope. And we know in Psalms 103, the psalmist gives us this promise. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. When we humble ourselves and confess our sins, when we're honest about our wretchedness, God takes those sins by the gift of the sacrifice on the cross and removes them as far as the east is from the west from us. They are ours to bear no more. I ask you again in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, is the Pharisee forgiving? He was condemning. He even made a special effort to call out the tax collector and make note of how much better he was than that tax collector. No humility there. And, final, and a final element of three elements that I divide this into is to request Jesus' grace to change you, to transform you. Confess your wretchedness. Accept, affirm, and believe in the forgiveness available to you and ask God to change you and be ready to be changed. See, the other gospel, again, it would tell you to do the right things. It tells you to work backwards. Go to church, read your Bible, do community service, pray, fast, do these extreme things, and it will go well with you. Again, those things are fruits, but them and themselves will not change you. God has to change you, because eventually you will burn yourself out. If you do those things under your own strength, you will burn yourself out, and you will give up, because you can't do it any longer. And that's when you begin to realize, hopefully there's another opportunity for you to realize that you can't do it any longer. It's only by the grace of God. Looking at this letter to the Galatians, the leaders of the Jewish Christian church, they were raised under this teaching. This Pharisee that Jesus talked about in his parable. We see all through the Gospels where these Pharisees kept calling Jesus out. Why did your disciples eat on the Sabbath? Why did they do this? Why did they do that? Why did they break all these laws? That's the influence that these Jewish Christians were under. They'd been taught that all their lives. So who is he talking to here in in this letter? It could have been Christian Jews. 
It could have been Jews who were not converted, who didn't like seeing these converted to Christianity. But basically, he's talking to anyone who preaches a gospel other than the true gospel. Brothers and sisters, this morning, it's hard to change. It's very hard to change. And that's why we have to realize we can't do it under our own strength. A picture came to my mind. At the lumberyard every year, we get these calendars that are rolled up. You're supposed to unroll these things and put them on the wall. What happens when you unroll a calendar and you try to hang it on the wall? It curls itself back up again, doesn't it? You have to put weights on that calendar and, and keep it flat for a few days. Is that kind of what Paul faced here? He went to the Galatians. They received his message. They saw the truth. But as soon as he left, they curled back up. They believed what they'd been told before and they quickly forgot what Paul and Barnabas had taught them. The reality is, many, I've heard many of you say it already since I've been here, and it's true. I've said it all my life. The gospel is easy. It's very easy. But when we're taught the law, when we're taught that we have to do things, the gospel appears too easy, doesn't it? See, what happened with the Galatian people is they believed the gospel. It was so simple and so freeing that they believed it. But then when Paul left, life started to happen. Instead of going back to the gospel that Paul taught them and trusting that it would be sufficient, they went back to what they knew, following the laws, doing the works. And this is what Paul was dealing with. You see, rules seem easy. They're familiar. I like checklists. I like to know that when I'm done, I'm done. And it's hard to change. We talked about that roll, that map being rolled up. I don't know if you remember the first time I spoke before we were voted in. I told you that I create a map in my head of buildings. In the past two weeks, I've had an opportunity to be around this building some. I've kind of got that map down somewhat. But those beams over there, I found them a few times. They're still not in my map. I asked the question if they're structural. I was assured that they are, so I have to get them in my map. But I have to think when I run into those, how many times do I run into spiritual things in my life that I know better, but it's so hard to change? And what I have to do, I have to give those things to God and say, God, I can't change this. I can't change my path. You have to do it. Please help me. The author, Heath Lambert, had a quote in one of his books. He says, The the logic of despair is broken by the miracle of grace. Again, the logic of despair is broken by the miracle of grace. You see, if we stopped at confession, it's logical. These things are sinful. These things are wrong. These things are wretched. If we stop there, it brings a great deal of despair. But by the miracle of grace and by grace alone, we don't have to stay in that despair. 
there's forgiveness and there's transformation available to us by the grace of God. Going on to my second point, just to give you some reassurance, the second two point, the last two points won't be nearly as long as the first. But looking at our second point, the penalty. Verses 8 and 9 in our text in Galatians. Paul says, even if we, speaking of him and Barnabas, or an angel from heaven, even if we had presented this other gospel to you, we should be cast out. We're wrong. And what he's telling the people is that it, don't put your faith in men. Don't put, even put your faith in us. Put your faith in the gospel that we're teaching you. You see, what he was confronting here is what we were talking about earlier. They were dealing with leaders in the Jewish church who were telling them one thing and Paul was telling them another. And they were putting their faith in these men because they're the men they knew as their authority all of their life. You know, we can get caught up in that today. Don't trust in my words as your pastor. Take what I tell you and test it. Test it with Scripture. Test it through prayer. Ask God to guide you through it and see what it means to you. We can quickly get caught up in, oh, I listen to such and such a preacher. I listen to this gentleman on the radio. I read this gentleman's books um, to the point where we can be considered a, a disciple of one of those Christian leaders. And there are many beautiful Christian teachers and preachers out there. I'm not telling you not to listen to them. I'm encouraging you not to lock yourself into one and to test everything you hear. Not in fear and panic, but in love and diligence. There are beautiful resources out there available to teach you, but put your faith first in the Bible and allow God to guide you from there. Paul, in these two verses, he repeats himself. He wanted to get his point driven home. I am a repetitive learner. I don't know about you, but I will often read a book twice, back to back, to glean the truths that God has for me. I will read Scripture repeatedly. That's the way I learn. Well, Paul was using that teaching method here. In his first statement, he says in, in verse 8, We are an angel from heaven. In verse 2, speaking of the same thing, he says, If anyone, it doesn't matter who it is, whoever teaches you the improper gospel, that's who I'm talking about. In verse 8, he says, The gospel preached to you. In verse 9, he says, The gospel you received. As he repeated the statement, but he varied it a little bit. He broadened the scope who, who was bringing it, and he went from the gospel you heard to the gospel you received. Not only did you hear this gospel from me, you received this gospel. He saw it in their eyes, he saw it in their actions, yet they turned back away from it. And what's the result? He says they'll be accursed. What does that word accursed mean? And the root Greek word behind it means cast out or excommunicated. They need to be cast out of the fellowship. That's how severe this is, and that's what Paul was telling them. On to our last point, the pleasing. Paul addresses the pleasing. And verse 10 connects with our text this morning. It's kind of a transition into our text next week. But Paul is very careful 
to say that what his purpose was. His purpose was to please God and not man. And that man includes himself. Not to please himself, not to satisfy himself. His sole purpose in telling them this and being so adamant about it was to please God. You see, that's very contrary to those preaching the other gospel. As you look at the Pharisees and the different times they confronted Jesus, they were scared to death they were going to lose their power. They were scared to death that they would lose their authority. That's what... That's why they wanted to keep Jesus at bay. It was all about them and their power. It wasn't about helping these people. The Expositor's Bible Commentary puts it this way, and I'm going to read it word for word because it really laid it out for me. It says, To tamper with the gospel is to trouble the church. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers are not those outside, who oppose, ridicule, and persecute the church. It's not the unbelievers that are the worst threat against the church. But those inside who try to change the gospel, to make it more about man and less about God. You see, it's all, again, about motive. We talked about the Pharisees. Their motives were to keep their power, to keep their control. It's about ourselves, what's in it for us. You see, we need to love God because He's God. Not because of what He does for us. My wife did not know I was going to end the sermon this way this morning. But her illustration with our little Margaret fits perfectly in here. How do we address God? Do we address Him as the only one who's worthy to, to be praised? Do we address Him out of sheer love, pure love, unconditional love? Or do we address Him because of what He can do for us? Do we address Him because of what's in it for us? Well, if I read a little of my Bible today, maybe things will go better. Not in my spirit, but just circumstantially. Is that the way we live our lives? Or do we pray to God because we love Him? Do we want to communicate and fellowship with our Creator because we love Him? Do we read Scripture because we want to know more about our God or because we want more from our God? What are our motives? It tells a lot about whether we truly understand the Gospel or not. I encourage you this morning to search your hearts. But not in fear, not in panic. But in an understanding that God is waiting to guide you. To help you through the troubles, the trials of this life. To help you through addictions. To help you through circumstances that are out of your control. Circumstances that some of your decisions may have brought on. But He wants to lift you up out of them. Restore you. And show you the power of His grace and the power of His love. So I encourage you this morning not to receive anything other than the true gospel. Not to let anyone tell you that it's about what you can do. How good you are. 
It's about putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and allowing Him to change you. And out of that faith and love in Jesus Christ, the fruits will flow. You will long to read His Scriptures. You will long to be in fellowship with the body of Christ. You will long to be on your knees in prayer. Treat them as symptoms. Don't treat them as requirements. Seek a deep, true, untainted relationship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.